Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you. So we're continuing our study of the book of Haggai this morning. Uh, part one was last week, so if you missed that, I definitely encourage you to go back and listen to that because we're building a logical order here in this four-part series through Haggai, so it's very, very important that step number one in build this blueprint for revival using this architectural metaphor is very, very important. You don't want to get into building the house until you've built the foundation, so make sure you go back to last week's message and listen to that. So we're going to be looking at part two of this series, and we're going to be in Haggai chapter two, verses one through nine. Let me start by asking this question. If your life were a movie, what movie would it be? For some of you, you might say, it's a wonderful life. That's my life. For some of you, it might be more like Apocalypse Now. For others, it'll be somewhere in between. But one of the things I think is so powerful and important about Scripture is that it invites us to see our lives as a story. What is it about human beings that draws them to stories? Do you realize that humanity has told stories since the beginning of human existence? Human beings have always told stories. doesn't matter what culture in the world you look at. Human beings are drawn to stories and they're drawn to understanding their lives as a part of a story. One of the problems that we face in the modern world, particularly in the Western world, is we've lost the power of story to guide our lives. Part of what happened in what we know as the Enlightenment Project in Europe, and again, there are many great things, a lot of scientific um, advances that were made that we're all so thankful for, um, but at the same time, like any movement in history, there's good, there's genuine progress, but you can also have regress at the same time, moral and spiritual regress. And one of the bad things that happened with the Enlightenment is we stopped interpreting our lives through the lens of a story. God sort of got banished. He's, he's out there, whatever. He made the world and threw it off the, the cosmic clockmaker. He winds up the world and sets it to simply work on its own. But then that sort of banishes meaning and significance from life. And human beings, their lives are more like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, I haven't seen his latest movie, but I read a review um, by Rex Reed. And if you're not familiar with uh, Tarantino's style, he has a very, very unique style. Even if you don't know he made the movie, you can know you're watching one. And uh, Rex Reed did not like his new movie, by the way. He gave it like two stars out of four. Um, but one of the things Tarantino does is he does very unique editing where he'll show a scene and then all of a sudden it'll flash back five years and all of a sudden it'll jump forward ten years and you'll see a story with two people and then he'll jump back and give you the backstory where these two people met and it's sort of this odd editing back and forth and you kind of lose sense sometimes of coherency and order and I think that's how a lot of people view their lives. They just sort of see a scene, you know, I'm, I'm, this good thing happened, but I, I don't really know what the significance of it is, or this bad thing happened. I'm in this bad season of life. I'm wrestling with loss, but I don't know what it's about. It's, it's just kind of, it is what it is, is a, a saying that we have. Well, what does that mean when we say that? It is what it is. It means we don't know what to do with it. We don't have a story that can frame this to tell us, who am I? Where do I come from? 
And where am I going? And so we experience these things, both the highs and the lows of life, without a story. And so we're, we're left like characters in a poorly edited film where we don't know where we're going. But what Scripture is, fundamentally, is a story. It's a story of human life and existence. It's a story of humanities wrestling with God throughout life. And our lives, our stories, we each have a story. Our stories find their significance and their fulfillment by participating in this story of Scripture. And so as we're looking at Haggai, there is a story that is going on here. It has a beginning, has a middle, has an end. And we are invited by the Holy Spirit to participate in this story as well. To see our lives as having significance in light of what God is doing. So I'm calling this series The Blueprint of Revival, and I'm inviting you to use that metaphor of architecture and to look at your life as an architect looks at a job site. And they begin with the foundation. It's the most important thing. It's not why anyone buys a house, or at least most people, right? You, you don't go to buy the foundation. You, you want to see, well, where is it located? What kind of views does it have? How, where, where are the window arrangements? How many square feet does it have? Oh, does it have an open floor plan, which is like the popular thing now? Does it have an open floor? You buy a house for all those things. But without a foundation, that can all come to nothing in just a moment. So even though it's not the number one thing, it's not sexy, it's not the most attractive thing, it is the most important thing. And so for us, last week what we saw, just sum it up, is that the foundation for your life can't be anything but God. God is the ground of all being. And I know that as human, finite, and even fallen creatures, there's always a part of us, maybe, maybe less, maybe more, but there's always a part of us that screams out, nine, no. We don't want to say, yes, I should build my life on God. I want to say, I want to build it on my, my wife, on my kids, on my career, on my abilities, on my health, on my financial situation. That's what I'm going to build my life on. That's the foundation. And when Scripture says you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that, that's number one. God has to come first. There's always a part of us that says no. That's not smart. That's not wise. But until we do that, we are building a life that can crumble at any moment. And indeed, at some point in life, it will. If we build our lives on anything that is temporal, we will lose it. One day, that is a fact. That is a sober reality. And so it's actually wise that we build our lives on God. God is the ground of all being. If a person says to me, no, I, I build my life on love, you know, and, and I define love as this romantic feeling I have between you know, me and my spouse or, or boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, whatever it is. Well, who gave you that person? You go, oh, well, they came from their mom and dad. Well, where did their mom and dad come from? Well, they came from their parents and their parents. But you go back, and ultimately, where do human beings come from? Well, they, well, they come from the ground. They come from creation. Where does creation come from? It comes from God. So ultimately, what we're saying is anything in life that you think makes for good foundational material, it ultimately comes from another foundation. So God is the ground of all being. As Paul says in Acts 17 when he's trying to reach Greek philosophers who don't know the Jewish Scriptures. They know Greek philosophy. 
So Paul is a Jewish rabbi trying to communicate, who believes in Jesus as the Messiah, and he's trying to communicate to Greek philosophers who don't have the Bible what the deal is. He says, God is the one in whom we live and move and have our own being. God is everything. He's the ground of all being. He's the reason that we're here. So to build your life on anything other than God is foolish. So we want to begin by building a foundation. Make sure your life is God first. God first in all that I do. Jesus first in all that I do. He comes first, yes, above my family, my wife, my job, my physical health, my body, everything. Yes, he comes first. And that actually is wise. It does make sense since he is the ground of all being. And so if we've done that, if we've put God first, it is time to build a house. And that house is going to be with the things you see around you, with the people that you see around you. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I'm calling the message, The Courage to Build. So let's look at Haggai 2, 1 through 9, and we'll read this together. I'll have the passage up on the screen. Please follow along with me now as we read the Word of God. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just come before you this morning, and you know that each one of us here, myself included, we are building lives, but we may not consciously recognize that that's what we're doing. We're not thinking about maybe all of our choices. A lot of these things seem like simply the inertia of life moving us in different directions, and we're, we're not thinking so much as we're reacting to many things, but Lord, I believe that this is a time for reflection. This is a time to ponder the course of our life and the way we are reacting to things and the ways in which you want us to be proactive in how we address our lives. Lord, I know that you call us to put you first. We know that that goes against so many of the things the world teaches us. They teach us to chase all these things, what money can buy, success, power, sex, popularity, whatever it might be, but these things are faulty foundations that cannot sustain a life of meaning and purpose. And so we pray that not only would we put you first, 
but having done so, that we would have the courage to build our lives according to that foundation and according to the vision and purpose you have for each one of us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, we've put the foundation in place. We've made a decision. God's going to come first. Putting Jesus first. He's, he's coming number one above everything else, and I believe that's reasonable given who He is. But having done that, we don't just sit back. Sometimes Christians do that. They think, oh, well, you know, I raised my hand at, at the altar call, at the crusade, whatever it was. I have a foundation. And then they don't build anything. Either that or they're just building little, you know, little birdhouses or something. And, and God wants you to build something of meaning and significance. And so it does take more than simply having the foundation, not less. And that comes first. That is most important. But we are called to build. And so I'm calling this morning's message the courage to build because it takes courage to do so. And I have three points of application that are going to walk us through this passage. So number one, we need to reframe our present circumstances not in light of the past, but in light of the future God has for us. We need to reframe our present circumstances where you are now good, bad, whatever, not in light of the past, whether that was bad or good, but in light of the future that God has for us. So first of all, when we're looking at this picture here in Haggai, what's going on? We saw last week that the people were putting their family first. They were putting building a house first. They were putting exotic paneling up on their house, material things. So family and material things was coming before God, and God's house was left in ruins. And God rebuked Israel, and he said, no, I need to be first. You need to put me first. You got all the time in the world for the things you want, but what that says is you don't want me, because we always make time for what we prioritize. So you could put me first, but you don't. The amazing thing, like I said about Haggai, if you read all the prophets, is the people actually respond positively. Like it totally jumps out to me that he actually gets a positive response. And so unlike most of the prophets, the people respond positively, and so they begin building. Now it gives us the exact date so we know how long it was that they've been building. It's been about a month and three weeks. So they've been building for a month and three weeks. Now, another thing we know about this date is that there was a festival, there was a feast, and it was the feast of Sukkot, or booths, or tabernacles, and that was to remind Israel that they're a part of a story, which is what I've been telling you this morning. They were a part of a story, and they're a part of a history, and they're to remind themselves that they're living in these permanent structures, but that was not always the case. That's not how their parents or grandparents or whoever it was lived. And so they would dwell within these makeshift temporary buildings. I guess that's what the word originally means to code. It's not even necessarily just you know, booze or tabernacles per se, but impermanent, something that is, is not lasting. And so they would dwell within these things. They would kind of camp out. So imagine that. You get a tent. You all have a house or an apartment, and you go in the backyard and say, hey, we're living here for a week or three weeks or, or whatever it is. And it's to remind you that this is the story, that God was with you when you didn't have a house, when you didn't have an apartment that was solid and, and stable with a foundation. You were living in a tent. 
And it's to remind you that things have not always been this way and that God was with you when you were in that tent and God is with you now. And the danger when you get these permanent things is that you forget your need for God. Because now you see this as sort of occupying the space that God once did. Thanks God, I don't need you anymore. I now have this. Maybe I have a relationship. For some people it's like, yeah, I needed God, but now I met this person. Thanks God for you know, holding me over while I was lonely, but now I have this person so I don't need you anymore. So it's to remind ourselves as we go through different seasons in life that we need God. Now, this is one of those things where you know, when you go through a season of loss and let's say you kind of get over it, but then a, a date comes up, an anniversary of sorts comes up, or, or, or the smell of something. It could be cologne, perfume, it could be a fire, or whatever it is, and suddenly your memory races back to a time and you sort of get thrown right back into that sort of place. That's probably what was happening here. Because this feast of Sukkot also corresponded to what we read of in 1 Kings 8, which was Solomon's dedication of the first temple. So Solomon was dedicating the first temple, and it was glorious. But now here they are. And all they've got is a month and three weeks of work. And the sight is pathetic. There's nothing to look at. Now, there's a corresponding text. Ezra gives us a backstory. In Ezra 3, when they were celebrating this feast, the younger generation that didn't know any better, they didn't know about the temple and its glory, they're shouting for joy. Yay, hey, we're getting started. We had nothing, now we have something. That seems like improvement. So that's how the younger generation saw it. The older generation saw the same thing in the present. Same thing. A month and three weeks worth of building. And they saw it in an entirely different way. Ezra 3 says, the elders who had lived to see the temple before it was destroyed cried and groaned in grief. Because when they saw the progress of a month and three weeks, they didn't see it as we went from nothing to something, but we went from the greatest thing in the world, we had all of this, and now we're reduced to this. And it says they let out a wail, a cry. It broke them. It was an anniversary that reminded them of how much they lost, not how much they had. And so that's the context of God's Word here to Haggai. Notice what he says. Verse 3, Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? So that was about 66, 67 years ago. So we're talking, you know, people who are in their 80s or 90s. Who is left among you who saw it, and how do you see it now? God knows how you see your life. He knows how you see your circumstances. And he says, in comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? It's not something. It's nothing. The amazing thing is, God does not rebuke them here but rather he affirms and acknowledges that's where they are. He acknowledges their sense of loss. He acknowledges that this festival and this date and this, this feast calls to mind that which they have lost and that they're actually grieving. And so it is important for us, just like it was for Israel in this time, to reframe our present circumstances 
not in light of the past, but in light of the future God has for us. That's what He's going to ask them to do. He goes on to say, look, you're looking at what you have and it's not much. And you're really upset, not just because you don't have much, but because you had so much before. But what I'm going to ask you to do is forget about that. I'm going to ask you to forget about that. Because what I'm going to do in the future is greater. Like, you're just hoping you could get back to the past. And God's saying, forget that. That's regression. I'm going to bring your story to a greater height than you've ever had before. So what you need to do right now to have the courage to build is you need to look at your present circumstances and stop filtering it through the past. Which I think is an automatic response unless you train yourself not to do that. And instead, I want you to look at what you've got, the little that you've got. Maybe it's not much. A a little church. And I want you to start seeing it for what it could be. Stop comparing it to something else. Stop comparing your marriage to something else. A lot of people that, you know, know, they're miserable in their marriages. Well, why are you miserable? You know, and they'll say something that's present, that's kind of going on. But part of it is not just that. It's that it's attached to something else. Well, when I was single, I didn't have to get permission to go anywhere. And I didn't have to ask if I could spend money on this. And man, I had all the time in the world to do that. What are you doing? You are framing the present not in light of the future God has for you, but your past. Let me flip this around. In our text, they're looking back at a glorious past. And God's telling them, even though it was glorious, you need to let go. Because even a glorious past can hold you back. But I think this applies even for those of us where maybe our past was not glorious. Maybe it was terrible. For some people, even a terrible past can function in the same kind of way. Namely, they're not able or not willing to interpret their present in light of the future. They're saying the past was so bad. Like I've had a bad run. I've just had bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. Betrayal after betrayal after betrayal. Bankruptcy after bankruptcy. uh, Health scare after health scare. Whatever it is. And you say to yourself, well, I'm going to look at what I have right now in light of that. So whether your past is is a bad one, a hard one, a painful one, or even it was like a really good one, and you're simply not there anymore. Step number one, to have the courage to build the life God is calling us as a church to build, and you as an individual, is to reframe your present circumstances. Not in light of the past, but in light of the future. There's a famous line in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Philippians said this, there's one thing I do, letting go of that which is past and pressing on for that which lies before. I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
If I were describing Christianity in, in say, a world religions context, let's say somebody didn't know the first thing about Christianity and they're interested in world religions and, you know, sort of a pluralistic kind of thing and they want to know, what, how would you explain Christianity to all these people in this room right now who are gathered from different parts of the world with, with different religions? And obviously there's a lot of angles you can take, but here's a particular angle. I would say this. Christianity is an eschatological religion. What do I mean by that? Well, you, if you don't know the word eschatology, it comes from two Greek words, eschaton, which means last things, and logos, logi, which means study, word, or discourse, right? Biologi, biologos, study of living things. Eschatology is a study of last things. The thing about the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, is that it's always geared towards a definite future. It's always working somewhere. It's one of the unique things. Not all religions do that. Some religions, they have a past. They'll tell a story of, you know, the god Marduk sl slaughtered the Tiamat and scattered her body parts, and that's where the world came from. And then here we are, the ba Babylonians, because that's our creation story, Enuma Elish, and now we just take over the world. The story kind of ends with them, and then the future's just kind of, you make it up. You sort of make it up as you go. Christianity is eschatological in the sense that it views life as a story, it views history as a story, and it says history's really going somewhere. And because God, the God of creation is involved, it will get where he is directing it. It's going to get there. That's how it's going to end. Now, is it true that it's a mystery to us at some points? Absolutely. How are you going to tie these things together? Now, when it's your personal life, we hate this, right? You, you hate it when, all right, I know God's good and I know he's directing all things according to his word and he's going to, he's going to renew all things, heaven and earth, and, and he's going to bring heaven and earth together and the last time humanity saw the tree of life, it's going to be here again and we'll live forever in the presence of God in harmony and peace and no more war, no more crying, no more death. Oh, that's great. But how the heck am I going to get there right now because I got this falling apart and this falling apart and this person betrayed me and this is going on and I don't know how it's going to go. The irony is that tension that we so hate is what makes a movie good. If you know how things are going to work out at every point of a movie, you turn it off probably, unless you're really bored and you need to just do something else. But a good movie keeps you in suspense. A good movie builds tension, right? Conflict drives good stories. We don't enjoy it in our own lives, but it drives a good story. How is God, given this, given this, which seem contradictory, and this makes this impossible, how's God going to get it forward? If it's a movie, we're loving it. When it's our lives, we hate it. But God is moving everything somewhere. And the book of Revelation sums all that up. It says, this is where the story is going. God will get the last word. Life has the last word over death. Grace has the last word over sin. Peace has the last word over war. Reunion has the last word over schism. This is what the Bible says. So there's a real story and it's going somewhere and we are meant to interpret our present circumstances in light of the future, not the past, be it bad or good. The three key problems we may face in the present that inhibit us from working toward the future God has for us as I see it are, first, 
we are overwhelmed by the amount of work in front of us. So that, that's probably part of what the elder generation in Haggai's day was lamenting. They know how long it took for the temple to be made, and they know they're probably not going to live to see it built. That's a hard thing. Especially for us. Because we live in a time where I don't think as a culture we do well about seeing past our own lifetime. We want everything now. Everything we're going to do, we think it's, it's got to be accomplished in my lifetime. But most of the world always lived with this sense of, I'm willing to die in order that future generations can live. That's how most of the world lived for most of history and and even a lot of the world today still feels that way. Like the idea of laying your life down in war at 18 years old, 20 years old, fighting for your land, your soil, whatever it was, to lay your life down like that. Like we're thinking, if I'm dead, I can't see the glory. Forget that. I'm not doing that. But most people understood that a lot of what you're meant to do in life, you won't even see in your lifetime. So they're weeping over that. There's too much work to be done. You can be overwhelmed by the amount of it, and you can also be overwhelmed by the fact that maybe I won't get to see the fruit of it. We already know that's been the case with David. The great king of Israel, King David, longed to build God a house. He wanted to build him a temple. The desire was good, but God said, David, the desire is good, but my plan is that you will not be the one who builds it. You're a man of war, and and I use that for my purposes, but you cannot be the one to build the house. But the good news is, you will give birth to a son. His name is Solomon. And he is the one who has purposed to build that which you desire to build. The vision may not even be for your own life, but for the lives of the generations after you. And so one of the things that happens when we're overwhelmed with the work and with the task, we've got to remember, not everything God wants us to accomplish, we will live to see with our own eyes. We need to be able to see into the future. We need to be able to see past our life and into the generations to come and say, what kind of sacrifices and hard work do I need to make so that future generations know the Lord and flourish in life? So we can be overwhelmed with the amount of work in front of us. The second thing is we can be discouraged by the present lack of apparent results. Okay, so it's a lot of work, but let's say you're doing it. But it's slow going. And we know from the backstory that it was always slow going. There was obstacles. They're building, but then there were enemies that wanted to fight. We're not going to let you build the temple. We're going to distract you. Oh, we're going to file an injunction uh, with the king of Persia, and we're going to be like, hey, what are they doing? Are, they, are these insurrectionists? Uh, you need to stop this. So they're, they're trying to file their building permits, and they're getting blocked by City Hall. It's, you know, I've seen this happen in many of my friends' uh, and colleagues' lives. So that's all happening, and they have to keep building, and so they can be overwhelmed that things are just going slow. I think it can be that way in church life as well. Sometimes people, they're working hard, but there's an, the, the results are not what they anticipated. And so they grow discouraged. Gosh, I, I put a lot in, and I'm not, I'm not seeing the, the growth that I thought. The third thing is that we are depressed that what we had or think we had was better than anything we could ever have in the future. It's a sad thing when we consign our future to the past. When we limit what God can do and wants to do to whatever we've already seen before. If that's the best God can do, or if He let that bad thing out, well then I just, I have to consign the future to that. 
but God is that which is greater than anything we can conceive of, or else he is not God. That would be an idol. If you can fully conceive of God in your own human mind, then that's a figment of your imagination. The God of the Bible is beyond all knowing. doesn't mean you can't know anything about him, but you cannot grasp him and say, oh, I know you perfectly and understand all your ways and I can comprehend your power. No, you can't. So we need to reframe our present circumstances, not in light of the past. God has a future. Christianity is a religion of hope. It's always looking forward. And it always says, the best is yet to come. Can you say that this morning? Or are you in a place where you honestly, you, you like bite your lip, you're like, I can't say that. You know, I'm just kind of hanging on and holding on and, you know, just trying not to be bitter, you know, and trying not to do bad things or, you know, I'm just trying to just enjoy life, you know, just find the little, you know, smell of rose here and there, and th but that's it. Christianity is a religion of hope. The best is yet to come. That is what the Bible teaches. And so we need to live like that. And if we do, we're going to see our present differently. The second thing we need to do is reign in those emotions tied to the past so that they do not hinder the present work God has called us to. So, it's repeated three times, this verb, be strong, be strong, be strong. And, and what does he mean? I think he's talking about emotional strength. He's not talking about physical strength. It's not like, oh, you can't pick up you know, the, the stone and move it here, be, be, go to the gym a little more, you know, get strong, you can lift more. It's not what he, what, what does he mean? Be strong. He's speaking about our emotions. Our emotions can work with us and they can work against us. And what he's saying is you, you may be overwhelmed with emotion in this season of your life and being overwhelmed with that emotion is causing you not to build the life God is calling you to build. So human beings have always been emotional human beings. But you can also acknowledge that certain people and certain groups and certain cultures value emotions more than others. And I would say that we live in a culture that idolizes emotions. Historians have said that we are really a product of the romantic movement, romanticism which pushed back against the Enlightenment and just being analytical and logical about everything, following the head. And pushes back against the Enlightenment, you have Romanticism. And Romanticism essentially says, obey your feelings. Your feelings should lead your life. Disney encapsulates this in most of its films. Follow your heart. Now again, I'm, I'm not saying there's nothing good to that. I, I think that it can be good. Again, God has given us emotions, so it's not bad or wrong to have them. You do. But should we obey our emotions? Well, certainly not without qualification. If our emotions overwhelm us, so that in this moment, I'm looking at the present, God's calling me to build this life, and I'm overwhelmed with grief, because things have been so bad, or I'm overwhelmed with looking back at how good they were and they're just not anymore. I used to be able to do this, the good old days. I used to be able to do that. I used to be able to, and this is just, uh. And my emotions, beyond those realities, tell me to stop building. 
And so we obey the emotions. To be strong here means to rein in like a horse and rider pulling on those reins. You're not supposed to let the horse ride you. You're supposed to be the one directing the horse. If your emotions like a horse are pulling you off the path into the, the thicket and the woods and everything else, you rein the horse in, right? You don't let it tell you where to go. That's what we are supposed to do over our emotions. They're not bad per se. When you can get emotion and, and your head together, man, you, you can really get a lot done, right? But a lot of life is not like that. So we have to know, what do we do when my head and my heart are conflicting? Well, the answer here is to believe God's Word. And that is something that, yes, I think it can be perceived with the heart and the emotions, but it must be perceived with the mind. We must rationally understand what God has said. I've called you to build. I've called you to be brave. Build a life. See the future that I've had for you. The end is going to be better than the beginning. The best is yet to come. Believe this and build. And if our emotions say, nope, it's not going to be that way. Nope, the, you know, the best is behind us. Whatever. If you do that, if you believe and obey those emotions, you're going against what God has asked us to do. And like I said, we've, human beings have always had emotions, but we do live in a time when we are told over and over and over, obey your thirst, obey your desires, follow your heart. I love this quote from the 17th century mathematician and theologian Blaise Pascal. He said, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. There's a difference between the head and the heart. And when the heart is telling us to go away from God, if our head comprehends what God has said, I've called you to build. I've called you to be strong. I've called you to stop framing your present in light of the past. I've called you to build by looking at the present and seeing what I've got in store. If I've called you to do that, you must rein in those emotions. David in the Psalms, I, I mean, it's funny because he's the warrior king, right? But in a sense, he's, he's like an emotional guy. Read the Psalms. Like, I mean, he's very expressive. He's a musician. So he's a warrior, but he's an artist. And he's expressing these things to God, and he, he speaks to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Why? Speak to your emotions. Hope in God. For I yet, eschatology, I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. David believed in eschatology. God is going to bring things to where He wants it to go. Speak to our emotions the Word of God. God has called me to be strong. God has called me to, be, to build. God has said the, the end is going to be better than the beginning. And so that's how I've got to face life. So rein in those emotions. Lastly, number three, be encouraged that the Lord wants to be with you and desires to do His work through your work. Actually, it really begins at the end of verse four. If you look at that, it says, um, be strong, says the Lord, and work for I am with you. So there's the promise of God to be with you. And do you realize that's what this whole thing is about? 
Notice what God didn't say. Israel, I'll be with you after the temple is built. What did he say? If you will obey my voice, if you'll simply do what you can now, I know the temple won't be built today or even tomorrow, but if you will simply do that, if you'll respond to me, I will be with you now. Once again, this is one of the beautiful promises of Scripture is of a God who wants to be with you. If you read most of the mythology of the ancient world, there is no God that wants to be with you. The Greek gods, and I always, I always found Greek mythology fascinating. Honestly, I really did. The gods are capricious. The philosophers would even acknowledge that. They don't care about you. They don't care. And if they care, it's only insofar as what you can do for them. Because they're finite and they need you for something. They need you for their power. That's where their sacrifice is. They need it because they lack power. The God of the Scripture says, I love you and I want to be with you. That is a beautiful promise. If you'll simply set to doing whatever He's called you to do, it doesn't have to be much. God will be with you. And He follows that up with, and I will, and He says, and work, for I am with you. The promise here is that God desires to work through our work. I think a lot of people don't understand that. You get people, I think, on one extreme. Either some people think, well, God's not going to do anything, so it's just my work. That's all it's about. It's my work and what I do. Then there's, again, some religious people, and they think, oh, well, if God's working, then I don't have to work. But the biblical picture is neither of those. It's God working through your work. So your effort, your resources... Your sacrifice is necessary. You can't expect God to bless that which you refuse to give Him. And that's what some of us do. I know I do that. I'll expect God to bless an area of my life that I'm not giving to Him. God can bless whatever you give, but zero times zero is still zero. If you simply will give him five loaves of bread and two fish, that famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I mean, you go, well, if Jesus is God, he should be able to just feed everybody and not need anything. But this principle of God working through your work, Jesus doesn't say, well, I'll just feed 5,000 people. I don't need you. No, he says, how much food do we have? Gather it up. And they said, we don't have much. We, this kid that we found, he's got five loaves of bread and two fish, but what are these among so many? This isn't enough. We don't have enough. And Jesus prays and blesses it, and it becomes more than enough. It's this principle of God working through your work. If you want God to bless something, does anyone here want God to bless something in their lives? If you want God to bless that, you've got to give it to Him. You can't hold it back and ask for His blessing. Because remember, again, God wants to be with you. He wants a relationship. And if you're saying, God, I just, I just want you to do this for me, but, I, but I'm going to hold it back. Then God's like, look, I'm not a genie in a bottle. This isn't Aladdin where you, where you rub, rub the Bible and you get three wishes and I pop out and I'm blue and I tell jokes. I'm not Aladdin. Not the genie. I am the Creator God who made you in my own image. 
and I want a relationship with you. For me, the work is about the relationship. I want to be with you. And if you refuse to give this to me, then I can't be with you because it's not a two-way street, and that's what I want. I didn't make robots where I could push a button and you'll, do, you'll be perfectly obedient, but it'll, you don't have a will. He created human beings that could say no. That's what our little kids do, right? They're as cute as they are. doesn't take long before one of their first words is no. No. You're like, you've got to be kidding me, kid. You've been here how long and you know more than me? If we want God to bless our work, we've got to give it to Him. One of the encouraging verses in the New Testament speaks to this because I realize there are seasons in life where maybe we can't do much. There can be seasons in life where your health is so bad. I mean, honestly, you, you, you can't do much. Been there for friends and family and church members who were bedridden. Couldn't, go in, couldn't set up chairs. Couldn't greet. Couldn't teach. Couldn't tear down. Couldn't volunteer at BBS. They were bedridden. And yet from that very place, they could pray. And to some people, prayer is not a big thing, or they go, oh, whatever, and you know. But Colossians 3.17 says this. And whatever you do, whatever, fill in the blank, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever we do, you do it for the Lord. You do it for God. Whatever you do, if you're going to go to work in the morning, do it for the Lord. Don't just do it all. I've got to pay my bills and do this. Everyone else is doing that. And that's not what you were made for. It's a part of life, but it's not the reason you were made. It's something that was created to sustain life. But what's the point of life? It's more than that. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, if we're giving thanks to the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, then we are partnering with God in what He is doing. And that's something we can do no matter who you are or where you are in life. I love this verse too, Zechariah 4.6. And this is another, uh, he's a contemporary of Haggai. So he answered and said to me, this is the word, the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It's not by might, your resources, nor by power, your abilities, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Whatever we're doing, we have to remember ultimately, we are an instrument and, and we're, we're a part of it. It's required. But we are not the sufficient cause of what God is doing. God is ultimately the one standing behind us working through our work so that our work will accomplish that for which He has sent us. Sometimes, if you're like me, I count my resources. I look at my, I assess my abilities. And those are always limited, right? Like even whether you have a good season, you got a lot of resources, oh, and your abilities, you just feel like, oh, I can do this, I can do this. Or whether you're reduced, <laughs> I don't have anything and I'm not good at it, whatever. But what God is saying, it's those things will be used, but they're not the sufficient cause of rebuilding the life I'm calling you to build. It is my spirit. If you will simply give me what you have, 
you will purpose to make a life built on me, I will do above and beyond anything you could ask or think. And I know that that's what I want to do with my life. I know that my time is limited. You know, it's the one thing about just little health problems and things like this that as much as I hate it and it's annoying, but it reminds me of my mortality. This life is a vapor. It's here one day, it's gone the next. So what we do today matters. That we have the courage to build. That we start looking at what we can see not through the lens of the past, but the future. That any emotions we have that go against what God's calling us to do, we speak to them. And we rein them in and we say, you will submit to the Word of God. I will not allow these feelings, whatever they might be, to pull me away from what God is doing in the future because the best is yet to come. And be encouraged, the Lord loves you. If you even start, you don't, not even getting to the end, if you just start doing what God wants, He will be with you because He loves you. And He will accomplish His work through your work. So no matter what you're doing, your work matters. Every single one of you. Whatever you are doing, it matters because God wants to work through your work. Let's pray together that we have the courage to build. Father, we thank you so much that even though you spoke the world into existence, you are now shaping it through us, through our relationships, through our effort, through our abilities and our work. Thank you for including us in what you're doing. Thank you that every person in this room, whether they fully grasp it or not, has a meaningful, significant life meant to be lived on purpose, looking for the future in full expectation and hope that God is able to do more than we could ask or think. So Lord, I just pray now in this time that we would summon up that strength that You give to build our lives, to build our church, to build our families, to build our businesses, to build our ministries, to build our relationships with family, friends, and colleagues, and that You would use these to do a work that is so far above and beyond anything we can imagine that we have no choice but to give glory and credit to You. I pray now for a blessing over this time of response. In Jesus' name, amen.